All right, so if you would, turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 8. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're not going to read it again since Brother Chris has already read it. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. And I began a message last week on how to respond to darkness. And so we're going to be looking at um, what do we do when darkness comes into our life. Because how many of you know by now that Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, and how many of you know it's true? In this world you will have trouble. There is no way around it. You cannot escape it. Um, and there are many reasons for why that, that, uh, why God allows trouble to take place in this world, even in Christians' lives. Uh, even though you are born again and you are on your way to heaven, that does not exempt you from trouble. Uh, in this world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. Take heart. Because I have overcome the world, is what Jesus said. And so well, there is reason for us to understand that even in the midst of trouble, that there is a way that we can take heart, that we can actually find some sense of joy in it. Not in the darkness, in Jesus, and what Jesus promises, and what Jesus offers. And so we're going to look at some of that this morning, but I want to remind you that in Isaiah chapter 8, basically what we've got here is Isaiah talking to both Israel and Judah, but more specifically Judah. Now you remember Israel is the northern kingdom made up of ten of the twelve tribes. Y'all remember that? Judah is the southern kingdom made up of two of the twelve tribes. And what happened was when uh, Solomon died, the ten northern tribes did not want to follow the house of David. They rejected the rule of, of God's Messiah, if you will. And they raised up their own king, and they had their own kingdom, which is called Israel. Sometimes it's called uh, Ephraim or Ephraim, as I like to call him. Um, and then in Judah, they remained faithful to the house of David. And so we have the tribes of Judah and Benjamin that continued to follow the lineage of David and continued to hope in the coming Messiah and did not rebel against the authority of God. And so these are the two different tribes we have. Now the problem is this. Both of these tribes have fallen into idolatry. Both of these tribes have turned their back on God. Israel more so than Judah, but both of them have turned their back on God and they're walking away from Him in a very rapid manner. So God comes in and He tells them, because you are turning your back on Me, I am going to allow, not just allow, I'm going to send darkness your way. And we're talking about the kind of darkness that if you'll look in Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse uh, 6, notice what he says in 6 through 8. He says, "...because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently, and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remelion." Now let me explain that to you before I go further. Shiloh was a stream that flowed from the bottom of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so what you have here is a picture of the house of David, where the, uh, Jerusalem was the capital of uh, Judah, if you will. And so what he's saying here is that they rejoiced in Rezin, who was a king that had been raised up by the northern tribe of Israel. So what is he saying here? You rejected the gentle stream that flows from Shiloh. In other words... The way the house of David gently ruled you, you have rejected that authority, which ultimately, ultimately means what you have rejected is the authority of God. Okay? 
This was God's plan. God was going to keep a man on the throne of David all the way to the coming of the Messiah. That was His promise. The nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, stepped up and said, we don't want that. We don't want that. We want our own king. And so they raised up their own king. And so here God says, because you Israel rejected this authority, this gentle uh, rule that the house of David would have had over you, and instead you have rejoiced over Rezin and the son of Remelia, which was the king that they had um, uh, raised up to rule over them. Notice what he says in verse 7. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. Who's doing it? The Lord. He's bringing darkness. He's not just allowing darkness. He's bringing it. He says, I am bringing up against them the waters of the river. What do you mean? Mighty and many. And here he explains what it is. The king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over its channels and go over all of its banks. In other words, it's going to flow out everywhere, ain't it? And not only that, but look where else it's going in verse 8. And it will sweep on into Judah. Not only is it going to consume Israel, not only is it going to consume Syria, but it is also going to consume Judah. Or let me say this, it's not going to consume Judah, it's going to sweep over into Judah. And notice what happens next. Reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. So again, what we have here is a picture that because they rejected the authority of God, God is allowing darkness and He is actually sending darkness into this land. And so what we need to understand from this is that because as a whole, we all reject the authority of God. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. Every one of us have and are born with a heart that says, I do not want God's authority in my life. And so what we have here is a picture of what happens to the world whenever we reject the authority of God. And the answer is God sends darkness. And He allows darkness to consume the land. Even into the land of His people, it goes up to the neck. Now it don't go over the head, because if it goes over the head, what happens to Judah? And if something happens to Judah in the house of David, what happens to the promise of God? And so he's not going to allow his promise or his word to, to be destroyed. He is going to fulfill it, but he is going to allow darkness to come all the way up to the neck. And so that's what we're dealing with here. The reason for chapter 8 is Isaiah is telling this people how to deal with darkness. The first thing he says in verse 1, I talked to you about this last week, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. If you, want to, if you get confused or miss some details, go back and listen to last week's message. But notice verse 1, what it says. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, concerning hasten to the spoil, or in Hebrew, belonging to Mahir Shalah Hashbaz. And so basically, he wants him to take this large tablet, he wants him to write a prophecy on it, and in this prophecy, it's going to be concerning what this name represents. And this name means, hasten to the spoil. Ultimately, this prophecy is about Assyria coming quickly to make spoil out of the nations of Israel, Syria, 
and Judah. And so he's going to write his word. This is God's word that's fixing to be written. And then notice in verse 2, And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. So he's going to put witnesses in place. And he's going to make sure that you understand that you can trust this word. And you know, this is the way that he did with, um, with Jesus and the apostles. Jesus did not come here and just say, Hey, I'm the Messiah, follow me. And he didn't do anything to give you evidence to believe it. Go back and read the book of John, the Gospel of John. The entire book, if you will look with me for a minute at um, uh, John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, the whole Gospel of John is concerning this right here. I may not have gave him that. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So why is the Gospel of John written? So that you can see the evidence of who He was. You can see all of His signs. You can see everything that He did. There were eyewitnesses to it. Now, do you ever notice that when it comes Easter time or Christmas times that we don't see very many um, um, TV stations putting on documentaries about how Jesus didn't do the things the Bible said He did? We see ways of them trying to disprove that maybe it wasn't actually a virgin birth or maybe it wasn't actually a true resurrection from the dead, but they don't come in trying to dispute that Jesus did the signs that He said He did. Even the Jewish historian who was not a Christian, the Jewish historian Josephus, actually records during Jesus' time that this was a man that did mighty works. If you need, you can actually call him a man is what Josephus said about him. And so we have many historical accounts that actually prove eyewitness testimony to the life and the signs of what Jesus did. Let me show you some more Scriptures. In um, John chapter 2, verse 11, it says, This is the first of His signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. And what was the result of it? They believed. So Jesus did not come here just to say, um, I'm the Messiah and you've got to believe in me. No, He came here and He lived a life that proved it. And the more He did, the more these disciples came to believe, this is the one. And so we too have these same testimonies today that we are to look back and read the Gospel of John and see it and know that very few people dispute that Jesus actually lived this life that He actually did these things, that He actually died on the cross, that He actually rose from the dead. And so we have these gospel accounts so that when we see the signs that He did, we go back and we go, if a man can turn water to wine, or yeah, if a man can turn the water to wine just to keep the party going. If, If a man can do that, there's something different about this man, right? Notice what he says in John chapter 2, verse um, 23. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they what? 
saw the signs that he was doing. Are y'all getting a little better understanding of how you're supposed to read the Gospel of John yet? The Gospel of John is written for you to look at all the things that he did and know that he indeed was not just a good man. He was not just a good prophet. There's something different about this dude. And notice he says, when they saw the signs, they believed. Look with me at John chapter 3, verse 2. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. How do they know this? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. They know that there is something different about this man. And it don't stop there. Let's keep going. John chapter 4, verse 54. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when He had come from Judea uh, to Galilee. I didn't give Him the next verse. Go to John, John chapter 6, verse 2. John chapter 6, verse 2. And the large crowd was following Him. Why? That He was doing on the sick. They saw the healing that He was doing. And more and more people are believing. Why are they believing? Because they see that He is proving over and over and over again that there is nothing that He cannot do. Notice what it says in John chapter 6, verse 14. When the people saw the sign that He had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. In other words, the greater prophet than Moses that had been prophesied, this is Him. This is the guy. Why? Because we've seen the signs that he's done. Look at John chapter 6, verse 26. I'll stop after this one. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the field of the loaves. In other words, yes, you should have been seeking me because of all that you've seen me do, and it made you believe. But instead, you're not following me because you saw the signs. You're following me because I put food in your belly. That's why you follow me. And so what we see in this is that we have been given many testimonies to prove to us that the Word He has given us is absolutely the Word of God. How do we know that? Because Jesus proved he, who He was, and Jesus Himself um, identified the fact that the Bible is the Word of God. Everything He did, He said, not a jot or tittle shall pass away until all of it has been fulfilled. And then Jesus turned around after He lived the life He did and commissioned the apostles to go build the church to continue teaching, to continue His teaching. And so Jesus empowered the apostles to then go and continue the Word of God. That's the reason why the Word of God is closed today. And there are no more Word of God because the apostolic authority has closed. And so what we have here is that God has given us witnesses to be able to attest to the fact that this is not just any Word. This is the Word of God. Now go back with me to Isaiah chapter 8 and look at verse 2 again. I ain't going to get no further this week than I got last week. I'm just now realizing that. I know. Verse 2, And I will get reliable witnesses 
In other words, God don't just want you to take the Word that just anybody has written and say, yep, that's the Word of God, right? God said, I'm going to get reliable witnesses so that when you read this, you are going to know this is the Word of God. And these apparently were two people that were held in very high esteem over all of the nations of both Israel and Judah to some degree. More than likely, I hadn't studied it to see who they were, uh, but, well, it tells us. Uriah, so one of them was a priest, and I would assume the other one is likely a priest or a prophet in some way. And so they are reliable witnesses that everybody knows. And again, when I was talking about the apostles, let me show you just a few scriptures to prove to you that also... God did not just send the apostles out without any kind of signs and evidence. He didn't send them out so that they could just say, hey, we were eyewitnesses of of Jesus, so just believe me. No. He gave them special power, if you will. Notice with me in Acts chapter 2, verse 43. It says, And awe came upon every soul. Why? Because many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. How can we know that the Word that the apostles have given us is the Word of God? Because they're reliable witnesses. How do we know they're reliable? They proved it. They proved it with the, with the life that they lived and the things that they did. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So they didn't just come in and say, hey, we saw Him with our own eyes. Now, should that have been enough? Well, yeah. But it wasn't. It, God said that's not going to be enough. God said they're going to do things with signs. See, have you not ever wondered why we don't see the things that we see from the apostles uh, in today's culture? Now listen, we got a lot of people that stand on TV and a lot of people that try to stand up and claim that they, that they have this apostolic authority, right? And yet, have you ever really seen it? Be real with me. No. You know why? Because God gave it to the apostles for a purpose and a reason, and now you and I are being built up on the foundation that the apostles have already laid. Y'all tracking with me? This is the reason why the written Word is so important. They did what they did, and they built the foundation of the church, living a life in such a way that when people looked at them, they said... They're not just saying they were with Jesus. They're doing what Jesus did. And then go with me now to Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by who? By the hands of the apostles. Now again, I'm not telling you that there aren't spiritual gifts in the church today. I'm not telling you that. No, there are, still, um, there are still spiritual gifts in the church that the Holy Spirit empowers people. But can I tell you, it's not the same as what we're reading about right here. This was for a different cause. This was for a different purpose. And so does God still heal today? Somebody look back there and ask Chad Adams if God still heals today. Somebody... Somebody, if my father-in-law was still here today, you ought to ask him if God still heals today. Somebody ought to ask Rebecca Carpenter if God still heals today. Yes, God still heals today. Yes, God still does great things today, but not in the same way you're seeing right here. It's different. Look with me at Acts chapter 5, verse... um, Let me find the next one. Verse 15. 
so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. We don't see that in the church today. You know why we don't see that in the church today? Because this was for a different cause. This was for a different purpose. This was for an evidence, for sign, so that you might believe. So that all those around him might believe. So that everybody understood the foundation that these guys is laying, you can trust it. They're reliable witnesses. They, they can attest to the truth of the written Word of God. Look with me at Acts chapter 19, verse 11. Y'all don't mind if I do this this morning, right? Let's, come, let's go on with it. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by who? How do we know that Paul was called to be a true apostle? <clears throat> so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. It was different, y'all. It was different. And it was different for a reason. So that when you and I have the Word of God today, because you have the Old Testament that was written, that God Himself, through the Lord Jesus Christ, attested to be absolutely true. And then you have the New Testament that Jesus commissioned His apostles to write and to lay the foundation for. And because of that, we can know that these reliable witnesses can be trusted that what we have been given is the Word of God. This is important, y'all. This is so important. And so we have reliable witnesses that He's given. Can, can I give you just one more? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Here's what the Apostle Paul told them whenever, he said, whenever they questioned his apostleship. They were questioning. Corinthians were whether Paul was really, whether his authority was true, whether they should trust him as an apostle laying the foundation of the church. And Paul said, let me tell you something. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. What are you talking about, Paul? With signs and wonders and mighty works. How do I know that the authority of Paul is genuine? He proved it. Paul didn't just come to me and say, I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. No. Paul came and he said, I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. And by the way, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And you know what happened? He walked. Well, I know that's Peter actually, but still, y'all get the point. Y'all get the point. So anyway, back to Isaiah chapter 8. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechai, to attest for me. And then, notice what he does next. So the first thing he gives us in darkness, i got to get back on my sermon. The first thing that God does to us in darkness is that even though we're going to have to live in darkness, we're going to have to deal with darkness, first thing he does is he gives us a written word. He gives us a written word. And he says, I am going to give you direction in this darkness. And it's going to come through this written Word. I'm going to give you um, um, uh, hope in this darkness. Encouragement in this darkness. And it's going to come through the written Word. And notice in verse, um, in verse 16 of the same chapter. Notice what God tells Isaiah to do with this Word. 
He says in verse 16, bind up the testimony and seal the teaching among my disciples. Now, is it going to stay like that forever? No, there's going to be a time when this Word is needed most. And let me tell you when that is. Go down with me to verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. In other words, when darkness comes down on the land and they start wanting guidance, most of the time you and I go to guidance for the, from, from, to the wrong place, don't we? And he's saying here, when they start looking for guidance and they're looking in all the wrong places, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell them, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Okay, God, then where do we go to inquire of you? Look at verse 20. Oh, this is good stuff. Y'all ain't, ain't hearing this. Where do we go, God, to inquire of you? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this Word, it is because they have no dawn. They have no light in them. Where do we go when darkness surrounds us? And if you will not respond to this Word, listen to me, if you will not agree with this Word, it is because there is no light in you. Now that's tough, ain't it? And let me tell you why this is so important. God help me get through one point. Good gracious. Let me tell you why this is so important. I can't tell you in the years of ministering how many people I have counseled, how many people I have tried to direct, and this goes for me too, alright, so I'm not, I'm not excluding myself from this, alright? But I can't tell you how many times whenever people are going through something in their life and they, they're needing direction, and I will give them the direction. But can I tell you, I can probably count on one hand how many times people have actually followed that direction. You know why? Because most of the time, we think we've got it all figured out. We think we know the right way. We think we know the direction we should go. And instead of looking to the light and following the testimony and the teaching, what do we do? We go our own way. And what is usually the result of us going our own way? Just more trouble. Deeper into the darkness. And so it's very important that we understand that guys, this is God's written Word. Do you believe that? This is not just any ordinary book. It is a guide for our lives, especially in the time of darkness when we're looking for direction. And it is important that you and I understand that we should turn to it, and we should trust it, and we should follow it, and we should believe it. And the truth of the matter is this, if we continue, now I'm not telling you that a true Christian cannot reject this from time to time in their life, because how many of you know that's what David did? And God said David was a man after his own heart. And so I know that a genuine Christian can still make a decision to not turn to the teaching, not turn to the testimony, and not follow the Word of God. I know that. But if your life consists of that, and every time you get in something, you go your own way, you make your own direction, and you are never turning to the teaching and to the testimony, but instead you're inquiring in all the other places which direction you should go, it is likely because you have no light in you. 
That's the truth. That is the truth. And that's exactly what he just said right here. And so the first thing that we got to understand is we have to follow the written Word. It is reliable. We can trust it. And He has given it to us for such a time as this. Next, notice what He says next in verse 3 through 4. We get the next uh, part of this, uh, how do we respond to darkness? We do it by believing the signs. Notice what He says in verse 3. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalah Hashbaz. Now he's already written the testimony about the hasten to the spoil. Now he has a baby and God says to him, now I want you to call his name whatever that was. Now, I don't know about you, but I thank God that he didn't tell my parents what to name me. <clears throat> I don't want to be this guy getting ready to buy a house and have to sign a mortgage. I'm talking about it's going to be a long day, right? But anyway, God tells him, He says, go to your wife and you're going to conceive a child. And when you conceive this child, I want you to name him this. Why in the world would God do that? Because the first child that, God, that, that Isaiah had, if you were to go back to chapter 7, was a guy that his name meant a remnant shall return. Isaiah's name meant God saves. Now think about that for just a minute and go with me to verse 18. And notice what Isaiah tells them. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts. So here's what happened. If you were here when I preached chapter 7, you remember King Ahaz of Judah was trying to make his own plan about how he's going to get out of this darkness coming. Y'all remember that? And he says, go send Isaiah. Now Isaiah has been preaching for 16 years. And chapter 6 told us the message. The message was, make the heart of this people dull. Make their eyes blind. Make their ears deaf. He said, preach and preach and preach but they're not going to listen to you. And as a matter of fact, the end of it is going to be, if you go to the end of chapter 6, that 90% of Judah is going to be destroyed. The water is going to come up to the neck. Right? 10% is going to remain. So when he's been preaching for 16 years, they're not believing. Why? Because their heart's getting harder, their ears are getting deaf, their, um, their eyes are getting blind. Y'all tracking with me? Excuse me. Now, here's what happens. God sends Isaiah to Ahaz. Ahaz is running around making his own plan, trying to find his own guidance, how I'm going to escape this darkness. He sends Isaiah, and Isaiah comes with his firstborn son. God says, I want you to go with your son, whose name just happens to be a remnant shall return. So Isaiah's name means God saves. And for 16 years... Isaiah has been preaching, God saves, God saves, God saves. Isaiah, in and of himself, has been a sign to Israel that what? God saves. But do they believe it? No. And then, whenever Ahaz is still trying to turn to the darkness, and the nation of Judah is still trying to turn to the darkness, he comes and he says, oh, by the way, this is my son. His name is a remnant shall return. What's that sign mean? Y'all going away. 
but a remnant shall return. Now he has another son who is a sign, and this son's name is the speed, I mean the, the spoil is going to be hastened very quickly. In other words, destruction is coming fast. The darkness is coming fast. And all of these things are signs. Not only that, <coughs> excuse me, in chapter 7, you'll remember that he gave another sign, a child named Emmanuel. You remember? He said, the virgin shall conceive a child. Now we know that ultimately that prophecy was about Jesus Christ. But it also had an immediate fulfillment. There was likely a royal child of some kind that was born in a time frame that Ahaz was going to be able to see it. The mother was going to call his name Emmanuel. And before this child was old enough to know right from wrong, the spoil was going to be taken away to Assyria. And so there were all kind of signs that God had given so that the people could look at it and say, it's coming. I know what the Word of God is saying is true. And how many of you know, going back to what I just told you a few minutes ago, Jesus has given us all the signs in the world to know that what the Word of God says is true. The apostles have given us all the signs in the world that even when they got in the shadow of Peter, they were healed. That when they touched the handkerchiefs that Paul had touched, they were healed. And yet we have all this today, and yet we still don't believe that what the Word of God says can be trusted or should be trusted. And so what God says is this, look at the signs. Look at the signs and believe the signs. And so He tells Isaiah in verse 3, go and name this boy, hasten to the spool. Why God? Verse 4, because before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. In other words, hasten to the spoil. What does that mean? Run to it. It's going to happen fast. How fast is it going to happen? Before this boy knows how to cry, my father, my father or my mother. And how long does that usually take? Before your little boy, your little girl says, mama. Or dad, dad. Six months, a year, something like that. Maggie will find out here soon. She'll let us know. It's going to happen very fast. And this is going to be a sign to Israel. Whenever Isaiah names this kid this, they're supposed to be able to look at it and know it's coming. And then notice what he says next in uh, verses 5 through 10. He says, Y'all need to learn from the darkness. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remelia, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel." What's God doing right there? He's saying, here's what you write in the testimony. You write in them that the reason this darkness is coming is because you reject the authority of God. You reject the authority of God is the reason why this is coming. Now, this may mean that folks that reject the authority of God are not saved at all, like I said a minute ago. It may mean that there's no light in them. And that's the reason why they won't respond to the Word of God. It may be that. 
uh, John in 1 John, I think it's chapter 1 or chapter, chapter 1, he said, if we claim to have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness, what? We lie and we do not practice the truth. In other words, if we say that we have fellowship and we have oneness with God and yet we reject His authority, guess what? There's no truth to it. There's no truth to it. And darkness is the reason why that comes. Another reason why darkness comes and why we reject the authority of God is that maybe we're just surrendering to the flesh for a time instead of the Spirit. It may not necessarily mean that you're not saved, that there's no light in you, but the fact of the matter is, <clears throat> sometimes the darkness of, uh, in this world comes because we fulfill the flesh instead of following the Spirit. And as a result of that, the Bible says those whom God loves, what does He do? He disciplines. He disciplines. And so the discipline of God sometimes comes into our life. But sometimes darkness comes into our life not because of either of those reasons, but simply because the darkness of the world affects even the faithful. Notice what it said here. There's a remnant that's going to return. What is that remnant? It's a faithful remnant. But guess what? That faithful remnant is going to be carried off into captivity too. Did they necessarily do anything to deserve this? No. But because of the judgment that fell on the nation as a whole, guess what? It affects even the faithful. And how many of you know that sometimes you experience darkness not because of anything you've done, but because of something somebody else does. Sometimes a parent experienced darkness in their life not because of something they've done, but because of something their child has done. Sometimes a woman experiences darkness in her life not because of something she's done, but because of something somebody done to her. Y'all tracking with me? And because there is darkness in this land, because people reject the authority of God, sometimes each, even the faithful have to deal with the darkness. And so, what do we do with that? Well, Romans chapter 5, and I don't know this verse right off, I think it's 5, maybe verse 3. It says, we rejoice in sufferings. We rejoice in sufferings. We rejoice in darkness and trouble. Why? Because we know that the darkness of this world, the sufferings of this world, they produce something in us. They produce in us character. They produce in us endurance and long-suffering. They produce in us hope. And hope does not disappoint. And so what we understand is this. Sometimes in the darkness, God allows darkness to come to grow you, to mold you into what you are supposed to be. Sometimes He allows darkness in this life to cause you to trust in Him even more than you've ever trusted. How many of you know that when darkness comes into your life, that's when you really learn to trust God or not trust Him? That's where, it's, that's where it's happened at. That's where faith is tested at. And he says here that hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, hope only, only, suffering only brings more hope into a Christian's life. When darkness comes, it only makes me hope even more in the light. The more darkness comes, the more I long for the day when there's no darkness. And if that don't happen in your heart, then you need to grow in your faith. You need to look back at the written Word. You need to trust it. You need to believe it. You need to know that the promises of it are true. And I cling to it and I hold on to it. And so we need to learn from the darkness. 
And then now go with me to um, verse 11 through 22. Because next in the darkness, a choice has to be made. You've got to make a choice in the darkness. And notice what this choice is. For the Lord spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me. What does that mean? What's Isaiah saying? When God said this to him, what do he mean? This is serious, right? There's a strong hand upon Isaiah when he speaks this word to him. And he says here, And he warned me, Do not walk in the way of this people. There's a choice that has to be made. When darkness comes into your life, you can choose to follow the way the world goes when darkness hits the world. Or you can choose to follow the way that God would tell you to go. You have to make that choice. Notice what he says next. He says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Here's the way the people of the world walk when darkness is. First off, we walk in fear. That's what we do. We walk in fear. And he says here, notice what he said again. He says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. In other words, the people were crying and begging for a confederacy, some of your versions say. And that means we need to, because this great army is coming down, we need to make some, um, some agreements with other, other people so that we can team up and beat this darkness. No. You know what you need to do? You need to trust the Lord. You need to trust the Lord. When darkness comes, you need to make a decision to not walk in fear, trying to figure out what you're going to do, what direction you're going to go, how am I going to do this, how am I going to do that, what's going to happen now, what's this, and ain't that our natural way to respond? It's our natural way. But he says you need to make a choice that you're not going to walk in the way that this people walk. And instead... You're not going to fear what they fear, do what they do. But it said in verse 13, here's the choice you've got to make. But the Lord of hosts, He, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. A choice has to be made. Are you going to fear what the world fears? Or are you going to fear what God, fear God and not trusting Him and not following Him? Because that's what I fear. I fear that if I don't trust God, what's going to be the result of faithless people? My fear needs to be, God, You alone are holy. What does that mean? There's nobody like You. There ain't nobody else to turn to but You. You are the only one that can do anything, that has any control over anything. You alone are holy. I turn to You. And then, God, You alone are my fear. I put my trust and my hope in You and You alone. And that choice has to be made. And in your darkness, you will make one of those choices. But there's a heavy hand on Isaiah. And Isaiah, he, God says, Isaiah, you make the right choice. All the world is making this choice. You make the right choice. And notice what Isaiah does down in verse 17. Go down to verse 17 with me. I love this. What's Isaiah going to do in the darkness? He's going to wait on the Lord. Waiting is the hardest part, ain't it? I think it's Tom Petty that said that. No, it's the Bible actually, but Tom Petty wrote a song about it. The waiting is the hardest part. The waiting. That's tough, ain't it? Darkness is here. I don't know what to do. 
I don't know how to respond. I don't know what decisions to make. I don't know what to do. You know what Isaiah said I'm going to do? I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait on the Lord. And while I wait, you know what Isaiah is also going to do? Notice, notice, first off, he says, I'm going to wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob. He's hiding His face from them right now. They can't find God, can they? And notice what he says next. While he's waiting, I'm going to hope in Him. While he's waiting, I'm going to hope in Him. And so the way we respond to darkness is we make the choice. And I'm going to come back to that next week. So this will, there'll be a third week of this message. <laughs> Maybe a fourth, fifth, who knows? Who knows? You know, here's the point that I would get to very plainly today. You cannot avoid darkness in this world. If you're not currently facing it or haven't faced it in the past, get ready. Darkness is inevitable in our lives. Y'all get that? Kim, you know that, don't you? Life was pretty good for a while. But darkness comes, and there's nothing you can do about it. Ask the King family. Life was great, but darkness comes, and there's nothing you can do about it. Ask the Smith family. I can go on and on, can't I? You cannot do anything about the darkness in this world. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But here's what you can do in that trouble. You can be of good cheer. You can take heart in the midst of that trouble. How do I do that? Turn to the written Word. You can trust it. You can trust it. Turn to it. When you need guidance, when you want guidance in your life, ask folks that know the Word. What does the Word say about this? What would the Word tell me to do? And even when the Word don't specifically address what you need to do, you know what James said? If anyone lacks wisdom, what do you do? Ask for it. And God gives it to all who ask generously. Let me tell you something. The Word will never leave you without guidance. It will guide you. It will show you which way to go. And then, trust the signs. Believe the signs. God has not just given you this Word and said, just believe it. No. God proved over and over again. And scientists today and historians today are still trying to figure out a way to disprove it. Have they done it yet? They can't. They can't. You know why? Because the signs are real. We trust it. We believe it. We believe it. And then we learn from the darkness. Learn from it. There is something that you are learning in this. You're either learning to trust God more than anything else in this life, or you're learning to repent from sin, or you're learning that there's no light in you. Y'all tracking with me? What are you learning from the darkness? Learn from it. And then make a choice. Make a choice. Are you going to follow the way of the world in your darkness? Which is what we do a lot of times. Or are you going to honor the Lord as holy? Are you going to trust Him? And in your darkness, wait on Him. Wait on Him. Hope in Him. There is hope that's going to be offered. We're going to get to that next week in Isaiah chapter 9. The written Word of God gives us hope, gives us encouragement.